Scripture text this morning is taken from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of those came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place during the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me open us in a word of prayer. Our holy and majestic God, may you quiet our hearts and still our minds to receive what it is you want to speak to us from your word. Jesus, we love you, and we want to be devoted to you more. And above all, we need to hear you speak to us, because this life can be hard. And as the apostles said long ago, you have the words of eternal life. So speak into our hearts. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Uh, before Mark and I came to Vine Street, we were in kind of a season of trying to figure out what was coming next. And um, so we were looking where to move, what to do. And there was a small rural church about 20 minutes outside of Waco that I found out was looking for a pastor. And uh, Mark was family in Waco, so it's like, well, you know, we should check it out. Um, this might be a potential. And I think I emailed with the deacon there. And so we were actually in Waco because we go there almost every Thanksgiving or Christmas to visit Marco's family, and so we decided to, to drive by the church building, see what it was like. And so we drive out to this church, and um, I remember pulling up to this little country church. We pull into the parking lot. It's a gravel parking lot and a park, and I looked one way down the street, and there was not a building in sight. And I looked the other way down the street, and there was not a building in sight. And I had this realization that I don't know what it looks like to do ministry out here. Because even then, I've always had a, a sense that, a, a, you know, one of the fundamental things the church does is engage in the mission that Jesus has given us to make disciples. And it's like, I don't know how to engage in mission when there are no people in sight. And it's just a realization that, you know, reading something like Wendell Berry can make living in the country seem very idealistic. And I'm like, oh, I can imagine myself being a country pastor and hanging out with my congregants while they're milking the cows. I got to you know, I just, but at the end of the day, I just, I've always been a city kid, or at least a suburb kid. 
uh, you know, I, um, <laughs> I drive a minivan proudly, and I had, see no reason to ever own a truck. And um, I, like, uh, I like soccer. Uh, I've never been hunting. I have zero desire to ever go hunting. It does not, does not interest me. Uh, I tend to speak quickly. I'm blunt. Uh, I'm intellectual. Like, this is not the resume for a, a, an effective country pastor. And so I, God, in his irony, one day may call me to be a country pastor. But more likely, I don't think that's where I'm going to be gifted. I don't think I'd be good at that. And so he put me in, a, in more of an urban context. The locus of Christianity at this point in Acts has been Jerusalem. That's where the church was birthed. That's where the mission to reach the Jews with the gospel started. And that made total sense because Jerusalem was the epicenter of, of Jewish thought and practice in the ancient world. If you want to reach Jews with the gospel, you'll launch it from Jerusalem. But it wouldn't have made sense, nearly as much sense, for a mission to the Gentiles to be launched from Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was so different than the Gentile world. Jerusalem was a much more homogenous culture, a much more, it was more homogenous in terms of religion. Not to mention that, that there was a, um, a skepticism, even a hostility towards Gentiles. So while God used Jerusalem to reach the Jews with the gospel, when his plan was to reach the Gentiles, he needed to pick a new base of operation. And that's where we find Antioch. And that's what we're looking at in our text this morning. This is Jesus building the foundation for where he's going to launch his church into the Mediterranean world to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because again, Jesus' commands to his apostles was, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the world. So this is Jesus in our text this morning beginning to lay the foundation to take the gospel to the ends of the world uh, to a, to, from a city like Antioch, that will be uniquely situated for mission to Gentiles and non-Jews. So our outline for us this morning is first, Antioch, not Jerusalem. Second point will be preparing Antioch. And third point is continued cooperation. Uh, so let me read for us again the first few verses, 19 to 21. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we're introduced to the Christians who first came to Antioch. Josephus, the ancient historian, considered Antioch the third greatest city in the Roman Empire. So the, the greatest city was Rome, and then Alexandria, and then Antioch was like the third major city. Even by today's standards, it'd be considered a significant city. There was about 500,000 people who lived in Antioch, which at that time would have been a massive city. And what's interesting about Antioch is, at least for a time, it was very generous in who it offered citizenship status to. And so if you were not a Latin or a Roman, and you wanted to become a citizen, you would move to Antioch because they offered citizenship status, which came with all kinds of benefits and, and all that. And so they had, obviously, a Greek population because it was originally a Greek city. When it came under the Roman Empire, they started getting Latins or Romans. Uh, it had a sizable Jewish minority. And then, interestingly enough, it also had a sizable Asian population because the trade route from the east, coming from Asia, went right through Antioch. And because of, again, kind of a generous citizenship uh, practice, they even had a, a population of, 
of, of residents from Asia and some of those countries. So again, Antioch was a very different city from Jerusalem. It was much larger than Jerusalem, it was much more cosmopolitan, uh, and in truth, it was much more reflective of your average Greco-Roman city than Jerusalem would have been. And so it's not super surprising that we see a much more openness to Gentile ministry in Antioch than we do in, in Jerusalem. And in fact, it, it tells us it's in Antioch that Jewish Christians first begin to speak to Hellenists or share Christ with Greek-speaking Gentiles. Now, before we move on, just a note on that. When you see that word Hellenists, if you remember from Acts 6, Hellenists referring to Greek-speaking Jews. Now that's kind of the big you know, kerfuffle there. Is that there's this division between Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews. But here I'm, it's pretty clearly referring to not Greek-speaking Jews, but actual Gentiles. Because it's already told us that they were not, the, the, the Jews were not sharing with anyone other than Jews at this point. And then it uses this as a contrast, so it wouldn't make sense if this was just Greek-speaking Jews. Um, plus, Paul talks about this time in Galatians. And he talks about how the, the Antiochian church was a mixed church. There were Gentile believers and Jewish believers, and at times that led to division. So this is a mixed church. This is the first time that Jewish Christians are taking the gospel to Gentiles, and it's happening in Antioch. And again, we're seeing Jesus lay the foundation for this mission, and that Antioch will be uniquely prepared or positioned to be able to champion a, a, a mission to the Gentiles. Um, again, you know, Jerusalem was just, it was just too Jewish. Uh, if they had tried to launch a mission for the Gentiles, it would have caused such division in the church, it would never have gotten off the ground. And it's not at all surprising that in a culturally diverse city like Antioch, we see this kind of openness to ministry to the Gentiles. Uh, Jerusalem had blind spots. The Christians in Jerusalem had blind spots. And those blind spots were obvious to the Christians in Antioch because they had a very different cultural setting. Uh, the culture we swim in affects how we read the Bible, uh, the parts of the Bible we think apply to us, and what makes culture very difficult is we don't see it. It's what we assume. You ask a fish, hey, what's it like to swim in water? And the fish is going to say, I don't know what you're talking about because he's only ever experienced water. And so it took the gospel going into another context, which didn't have the same assumptions that the gospel is just for Jews, for them to see, oh no, the gospel, of course, is not just for the Jewish people, it's for every person who will turn to the Lord. This is why it's really important to read Christians who are not in our cultural context, because we have blind spots, and it's hard for us to know what our blind spots are, but when we read Christians who come from other cultural contexts, they have a vantage point to see us and to help us see our blind spots that we wouldn't otherwise. So, for instance, a couple years ago, I began to read an Ecuadorian evangelical theologian named Rene Padilla, Rene Padilla, and reading him was so helpful because he, he was able to write in just a blistering clarity about the gods of consumerism in America and how that seeps its way into Christianity. And, and again, he's able to see it because he's writing from a very, you know, uh, Latin American impoverished context where consumerism is a joke. They're just trying to live. And so he, just, he, just, he, has, he had clarity. And, 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 you know, once you see it, you can't unsee it type of thing. So it's just, anyway, it's just, it's helpful to have Christians who are in other cultures who are listening to because uh, they help us see our blind spots. But here in Antioch, again, it's, it's, it's a culturally diverse city, and so it makes sense 
This is the first place where they begin to preach to non-Jews. It's interesting. We see how Antioch is going to be uniquely situated to reach Gentiles in the very way that they share Christ. What does it say? It says they begin to speak preaching the Lord Jesus or preaching that Jesus is Lord. Uh, you may glance over that very quickly, but that is some great contextualization. Uh, the gospel to the Jews was Jesus is the Christ. Um, you know, I mean, if, if, which, if you're a Jew, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the one that the Old Testament has been prophesying. He's the one that Jewish people have been waiting for. And so you go to a Jew, you say, Jesus is the Christ. They understand what that meant. This is why Peter, in, in Pentecost, he, this is what he preached. In Acts 2, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom he crucified. The problem is that if you say that to a Gentile, they're going to say, that is not going to mean anything. Uh, they didn't have the same kind of expectations for a Messiah. To call someone the Christ or the anointed one or the Messiah wouldn't mean anything. So what do they say? They preach Jesus is Lord. Which to any resident of the Roman Empire, they would have known exactly what the Christians were saying. Because in the Roman Empire, Caesar, the Roman emperor, was Lord. Uh, N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, he writes this. He says, Caesar, by being a servant of the state, had provided justice and peace to the whole world. He was, therefore, to be hailed as Lord and trusted as Savior. The Roman emperor, Caesar, he brought the peace that allowed for prosperity. Caesar is Lord. And so when the Christians come along and they say, no, 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 Jesus is Lord, will you understand what they're saying? They're saying a new kingdom has come with a new king. And that king's Jesus. And so they're contextualizing the gospel already. We're seeing how this is going to be a place that will be able to effectively reach Gentiles in a way that, frankly, Jerusalem probably would not have been as effective. And so for all these reasons, again, Jesus is choosing Antioch to be the base of his operations for reaching, sorry, for the upcoming Gentile mission. So that's our first point. Jesus chose Antioch, not Jerusalem, because Antioch was uniquely situated to be the base for this Gentile mission. But the second point is preparing Antioch. Again, we're seeing Jesus laying the foundation. He does it by preparing this church in Antioch. This is verses 22 to 26. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So you have this movement of God in Antioch, and the church in Jerusalem hears about it, and so they send Barnabas. Part of that is obviously sending Barnabas to help to encourage, to be part of that movement. But there's also a second reason. They're sending Barnabas to check this out and make sure it's okay. If you remember from last week, uh, the text ends with this beautiful truth dawning on the, uh, on, the, on, on, the, on the Christians in Jerusalem. In verse 18, it says, they glorified God, saying, then to, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance, leads to life. Is truth that, oh, Gentiles too, can be saved. But that truth took a while to sink in. 
And so the Jewish Christian leaders, like they're hearing about Gentiles becoming Christians in Antioch, and they're now more open to it, but they're still a little suspicious. And so they send Barnabas, partially to encourage them, but partially to check it out and make sure this is okay. They don't send Barnabas to Joppa when the, Jewish, when the Jews become Christians. But again, there's still suspicion here. It's not going to be until Acts 15 that the church is going to decisively declare, no, Gentiles are part of the church. And even after that, it'll continue to be divisive. But praise God they sent Barnabas, a man who's wise and good and full of the Holy Spirit, because he's able to step into this situation in a good way. And his ministry is characterized by a few different things. Again, notice when Barnabas comes, he first discerns that this is a work of the grace of God, and he's glad. He comes, and, 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 and although it would have been a very different culture than his own, although it was Gentiles becoming Christians, he recognizes, oh, this is God at work. And his first response is gladness. He rejoices that Jesus Christ has arrived by his spirit. Many of these Christians, again, they're Gentile Christians. They would have grown up in pagan contexts with no biblical understanding. They would have had a very different understanding of the cosmos from a Christian. Sometimes, you know, especially if we've grown up in the church, we forget that when non-Christians become Christians, it can be messy. Like Jesus, we believe we're saved by grace, which means sinners are the ones who receive forgiveness, not saints. And so when someone becomes a Christian, like, there's baggage that, that, that all of us bring into our relationship with Christ, and it can be messy. And so Barnabas is stepping into a situation where almost everybody there is a baby Christian, and many of them come from completely non-Christian backgrounds. And so imagine if Barnabas had shown up and just started ticking off on his fingers, well, this is wrong, this is incomplete, this is misleading, if he'd arrived in that kind of a spirit, it would have been a very different ministry. Which again, praise God that they sent Barnabas. If he'd been more concerned about the Christian's immaturity, I don't think he would have been nearly as effective. But instead, he rejoices that God really is present and at work. And in fact, it says this was evidence that Barnabas was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Verse 24, and it says, you know, Barnabas comes to Antioch, he sees the grace of God, he rejoices. Verse 24, for, because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. The church I grew up at, like many churches in the 90s and 2000s, had a youth Sunday every year, which is where the youth group ran the service. So the youth worship team would, would lead worship, the youth pastor would preach. The church I went to in high school, the main service was very traditional. So the pastor would preach in a suit and tie. Uh, worship was led by a full orchestra, which as a 15-year-old was like, boring. And I was an adult, I'm like, that'd be really cool to have a full orchestra lead us. So Blaine, if you could put that together. Um, but so that was, that was a service. But then youth group was like completely different. Very casual. I mean, it was just straight, you know, rock and roll, CCM the good, the bad, and the ugly of 90s, early 2000s contemporary worship. And, uh, you know, electric guitars and drums and bass, and we were so loud, and we'd get complaints all the time because there was Sunday school classrooms above the youth room, and, and we'd be disrupting them. And I remember one time we literally had a, a church member come down with a decibel reader, which is something that measures the sound level, and was, like, taking measurements, like, look, this is bad for your ears. You need to turn it down. So, like, Youth Sunday things looked very different. Like we had, you know, a, a, a rock and roll band leading worship and youth pastor preaching. And I remember 
one youth Sunday during, during the service, um, I saw an elderly gentleman, probably in his 80s, like in the front, and it was during the worship, and again, very obviously not the worship style that he was comfortable with, unfamiliar with the songs, but he was doing his best to like clap and participate and sing. Um, and, and, and I can only speculate, but I'm guessing that even though this was not particularly comfortable for him, he could tell, again, cheesy worship lyrics aside, this was a genuine expression of the devotion of the youth in his church. And so he wanted to rejoice in the grace of God, even if it was not his cup of tea. And, and he's sitting there, honestly looking pretty silly. And I remember thinking, I want to be that man when I'm 80, willing to make myself look kind of silly if, if only I can rejoice in, in what God is actually doing, regardless of if it's something I'm comfortable with or not comfortable with. And this is what Barnabas does. And I think there's a you know, clear application for us. I mean, do you focus more on the evidence of God's grace among us? Or are you more concerned with our weaknesses of our church or any church? This doesn't have to apply just to Vine Street. Um, I'm a fairly critical person by nature. That's just my bent. And so if you're like me, this is an important exhortation. What makes Barnabas a good man, full of the spirit and full of faith, is that he rejoices in God's work. The Bible never says that being able to criticize a fellow Christian for secondary differences is evidence of being full of the Holy Spirit and faith. But seeing God's work and rejoicing is. This is what Barnabas does. But I think equally instructive for us is that Barnabas doesn't just rejoice with these new Christians, but he gets to work. Uh, they have a long road ahead of them. Christian life is, is, is a long road. Uh, and there will be trials and temptations and hardships and so he wants to prepare these Christians to be able to follow Christ for the long haul. And so in addition to rejoicing, he exhorts them. This is verse 23. Again, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And then he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's his exhortation. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, this is a difficult verse to translate. And so if you look at different translations, they'll all word it a little bit differently, but there's two main ideas in this exhortation. And it's steadfastness, and it's being faithful to the Lord. Again, Barnabas comes to a place that's just had a great work of God, and he says, be steadfast. Don't just be a flash-in-the-pan disciple who burns bright and hot for a week or two and then sizzles out. That's, that's not enough. Um, you know, this is part of the danger with heavily emotional worship services. This is not our problem. Uh, <laughs> we could probably use more emotion, but there are churches um, that try to construct this very emotional experience, and the thought is like, you know, the more people are crying, the more authentic the work of the Spirit is. And here's the fact, folks, like movie directors know how to make people cry. Like there are things you can do to plan people's emotions and this is why, for my generation, you know, we grew up going to like heavily emotive worship services and seeing our peers express deep emotion and then after a couple years walk away and never come back. An impulsive decision made in an emotional worship service is not enough. That's what Barnabas is saying. Be steadfast. Be in it for the long haul. Uh, be a, be a, a disciple over your lifetime. It's the first exhortation. Be steadfast. But how do we do that? How do we avoid being a flash-in-the-pan disciple? 
This is the second part, the exhortation, remain faithful to the Lord. And I think actually the King James Version says it best here. Because the King James Version translates this as, Barnabas exhorted them all that they would cleave unto the Lord. How do you mean steadfast? Cling to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Make your life about him. Seek his face in, in everything you do, in your work, in your studies, in your, in your alone time. Seek Jesus. Because at the end of the day, Christianity, it's not, it's not, like, it's not like Buddhism, which is just you know, principles for life that you can discover in any culture. Christianity is, is about a historical event. Everything we believe rests on a claim about a man who lived 2,000 years ago. And if that claim's wrong, everything falls apart. But we believe that there was a man named Jesus who came who was not just a man, and he lived and died. And because he was not just a man, he rose again. And so Christianity is not first and foremost a system of thinking, but it's an encounter with a person, with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so how do we remain steadfast? Well, we continue to seek to encounter the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We do it through the word and prayer and mission and fellowship, and decades of that lead to a deep and an intimate walk with Jesus Christ. So this is the exhortation, be steadfast and cling to Jesus Christ. But again, Jesus has to prepare, I mean, guys, Antioch is why we're all here, okay? None of us here, I think, are ethnic Jews, as far as I know. And so Jesus has to prepare Antioch to be able to step into this mission, and joy and exhortation are not enough. They need instruction, too. Again, Christianity is not primarily a system of thought, but it does involve thinking right thoughts about God, and so there's also instruction in this church. And this is verses 25 to 26. And you want to talk about being instructed. This is the way you want to be instructed. So, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples are first called Christians. So Barnabas sees what God is doing and by the movement of the Spirit realizes, oh, I need to go get Saul to be part of this. And then Barnabas and Saul teach the Antiochian Christians for a year. Now I want to pause for a second and talk about Saul or Paul. If you remember from Acts 9, uh, everywhere Saul went, people wanted to kill him. It's an unfortunate characteristic to have as a human. And so the Christians in Jerusalem sent him back to Tarsus, his hometown, for his own safety. And that's where Barnabas is going to get him. What's not clear from this is that Saul's been in Tarsus for seven to eight years. What's he been doing there? We don't know. There's nothing listed. I think it's very likely he was just working as a tent maker, waiting for seven to eight years. Where were you seven to eight years ago? Some of you were like, I was right here, Mike. And I know, I get that. It feels like a blink. Some of you all were like in middle school or we're single and now you're married, or whatever. That's a long time to wait. I'm guessing Saul probably felt like God had forgotten him. And some of you are waiting. You're waiting to graduate, or you're waiting for a spouse to graduate, or you're, you're, you're waiting for a spouse, or uh, you know, you're in a job that's unfulfilling, and it's just like, what is my life going to? I, just want, I want you to know the Lord had not forgotten Saul in the seven to eight years he was waiting. He had not forgotten Saul, and he has not forgotten you. 
And he has a plan for your life which he will fulfill in his time. Trust yourself to him. At the right time, the Lord brought Saul to, to Antioch and he had a great work for him. And he has, a, he has a great work for you too. Trust him. But Barnabas and Saul spend a year instructing these new believers in Antioch. And again, I mean, what a dynamic duo. Barnabas, the encourager, the guy that, you know, on a rough day, you want him to take you out for a cup of coffee. And then you have Saul, the just brilliant, rabbinically trained Pharisee. And together, they're, they're teaching these Gentile believers Old Testament backgrounds and, and how Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy and what it means to be a Christian and, and, and what our hope for the future is for a full year. They're instructing this church, preparing them again to be the launching base for the Gentile mission. And it's here where disciples of Jesus are first called Christians, which part of it is revealing the like Gentile backgrounds of the city because oftentimes we think, oh, Jesus Christ, Christ is his last name. You're Mr. Christ. It's not, it's a title. And if you're a Jew, you do that. But if you're a Gentile, yeah, you think he's, that's his name. And so they're called Christians. Um, but it's so reflective of what that church was about. The outsiders are thinking of a nickname for them. Clearly, the, you know, they're like, these people, they just talk about this Jesus guy. They're just obsessed with Jesus. They, they, they order their lives around him. They, they talk about him to anyone who will listen. They're Christians. I think quite a testimony to that church. And so again, Jesus is preparing the church in Antioch as his home base for Gentile mission. It's a church that is culturally mixed. And so it's one that's going to be able to wholeheartedly embrace a mission to Gentiles. It's going to be able to launch that and embrace that and, 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 and you know, embrace it with all their heart. Is it, is a church has the vibrancy of new faith, People discovering the gospel for the first time, but they also have the depth of having sat at the feet of Saul and Barnabas for a year. And what's interesting is that even though the Jewish church in Jerusalem is like at best cautiously optimistic about them, which is not always the best foundation for a relationship, you know, if someone's like, I'm cautiously optimistic about you, like, oh, I don't feel welcomed. They love their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And they don't abandon them. This is our, our third point, continued cooperation, verses 27 to 30. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there'd be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So there are prophets, they come down from Jerusalem. One of them's name is Agabus. We'll see him again in Acts 21, which is interesting. But they prophesy there's going to be this great famine, and apparently that Jerusalem is going to be hit by this famine. And it's interesting, during the reign of Claudius, there were a series of famines and crop failures across the, the Roman emperor, or empire. And there were populations that suffered and even starved. And the whole point of this is, again, Acts 2, one of the marks of authentic faith was this radical generosity that in the early church, no one considered their own belongings theirs, but they, they gave what they needed so that there was no needy person in the church. Beautiful picture of, 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 of the church. And here is the church in Antioch demonstrating the same generosity. And that, that's the point. It's like this is an, an authentic, spirit-filled church. And so in the same way, they, they give according to their own abilities to the relief of the brothers and sisters living in Judea. 
although they're starting a new church, the Christians in Jerusalem who are in a different culture speak a different language. They'll probably never meet. They are their brothers and sisters. Baptists at their best, although we believe in church autonomy, we don't think there should be like a hierarchy, a papacy. At our best, we've always cooperated with other churches. We've seen that the kingdom of God extends far beyond our individual meeting space and that God is at work in, in all around us and that other churches are not our competitors. They are our brothers and our sisters, our co-laborers. At our best, we've believed that and leaned into it. At our worst, we've devolved into kind of just separate little fiefdoms competing for converts and members. But I think what this is telling us is that part of the sign of, of spiritual health in a church is a desire to partner with what God is doing outside of our own midst and to be excited. I mean, in Antioch, when Jerusalem suffered, Antioch suffered, right? That's why they sent money. And when Jerusalem rejoiced, Antioch rejoiced. Like, they were brothers and sisters. Just like when your brother is suffering, to some extent, you suffer as well. I think this is a sign of, of, of health. I'm not a proponent of megachurches. If you know me, you know that. And unfortunately, Southeast Christian Church, as the major megachurch in our city, gets all kind of flack, rightly and wrongly. I remember when we first moved to Louisville, our neighbors called uh, Southeast Six Flags Over Jesus, which is brutal and kind of funny at the same time. Um, I'll say this, though. Uh, for all the flack that Southeast gets, you probably don't know that they paid to have Franklin Street Baptist Church's roof replaced about 10 years ago for tens of thousands of dollars different denomination. Uh, Franklin Street was replanted by Clifton. There's no relationship between Southeast and Franklin Street. But Southeast has resources and they paid for that. And you probably don't know how much ministry and how much partnership and investment Southeast does in other churches and ministries throughout the city. And, you know, and, and say what you will about the church, I think that's a sign of and vitality. In contrast to that, when this past fall, I went to the Louisville Regional Baptist Association business meeting for the first time. Um, and I should have gone before, because it's my first time I've been. And the interesting thing is when you go, it shows what every church has given to the local association of Baptist churches. And, I'll, and I'll, first thing I'll say is, once again, little Vine Street Baptist Church, we are punching above our weight. Um, but the sad thing is that's because other churches that you think would give are not giving. And, and I'll, I'll just say this, not naming names, the churches that you think would be giving weren't giving anything. And the churches that gave the most were churches I had never heard of. Um, so again, I, th I think cooperation is a sign of spiritual vitality. And brothers and sisters, this is why we are part of the SBC. This is why we give to the KBC and the LRBA. This is why we pray for their churches every Sunday. Why we do joint prayer services. There is a, um, a big, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, Temptation is not the right word, but there's a big pressure towards individualism and just doing our own thing. And there's a question I want you to actually answer if you know it. Do you, do you know what the, large, what the fastest growing denomination in America is? They want to take a guess? It's not the SBC. Caleb. Yes. Clearly he's heard me say this before. Fastest growing denomination in America is non-denom because sometimes it's easier to go it alone. 
I don't, and so there's a, there's a pressure. And I feel this. Sometimes SBC says stuff. I'm just like, why are we part of this domination? It's easier to go it alone. I think in the long run, it's much worse. I think it's a sign of unhealth. And that's why we're part, and that's why we're going to stay apart for the time being anyways. Because we recognize the kingdom of God doesn't end with these four walls. We want to be excited about the grace of God wherever it appears. So when Bethany Baptist Church baptizes a believer, guys, that's a win for all of us. When Baxter Avenue Baptist grows and becomes stable, that's a win for all of us. On the flip side, when a church divides and has a mass exodus, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong, that's a loss for all of us. We're all on the same team. That's what this is telling us, I think. So in summary, again, Jesus is preparing the church in Antioch to launch the next phase of the early church, the Gentile mission. They've learned how to worship in diverse contexts. They've learned how to share the gospel in a way that contextually makes sense in a Gentile world. They've been, uh, they, they, they've been um, taught by Saul and Barnabas. They have a deep faith. And we're going to have one more kind of hiatus chapter where it'll focus on the Jerusalem church in chapter 12. But then we're going to come back in chapter 13 to Antioch, and Antioch will be ready for the movement of Jesus to send out Paul and Barnabas on the first truly international missions trip. Jesus is preparing them for that because Jesus is working. He's always working. Sometimes he's working in really big, exciting ways. Sometimes he's working in small ways that we might not see. But he is always working. So let me finish with Barnabas's exhortation. Brothers and sisters, be steadfast. And with all your heart, cling to Jesus. Because he is your very life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are at work in Antioch, preparing that church of people who had grown up in darkness without knowing the true God, who had come to know grace in Jesus, that you are preparing them for the work you are going to do, that you have a heart to reach everyone, that you are a missionary God. And so we non-Jewish, non-Palestinian, non-Middle Eastern, Western Americans 2,000 years later can know the hope of grace and the hope of the gospel and can have a relationship with the God of the universe. We thank you and we love you and we offer you all of our worship. Pray this in your holy name. Amen.